Hello and welcome to the More From Law podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Harry Clark. The world of legal technology can often be a confusing one, full of buzzwords, hype-driven articles and wild speculations about robotic lawyers seemingly coming for our jobs. This week, I spoke with Colin Levy, a legal tech enthusiast and fellow blogger to talk all things tech in the legal world. Let's get into the episode. Hope you enjoy it. So hi, Colin. Thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. No, you're very welcome. We were talking off air just before the show, but I've been following you on Twitter for a little while now as part of the world of legal tech, which is um, certainly very prevalent on social media, especially on Twitter. I've been following it. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, I'm very thankful to have you on the show. I've been loving all of the content you've been putting out. And uh, as a future lawyer, it's been really insightful to learn from someone like yourself about all the kind of future of the profession and um, the sort of thoughts on, on technology and how it intersects with the world of law before even starting practice. Um, I'm sure we'll get onto much of that before throughout this episode. Um, but just sort of to get started, for those who might not have met you or known you before, what's your sort of background uh, within the profession and why did you originally want to join or work within it? Sure. So um, I've been a corporate lawyer now for a uh, number of years. I graduated from um, law school in 2010. Um, I actually first got started within kind of the legal tech space probably a couple of years after that. Um, it, it kind of was an interesting story in some ways in that I um, was trying to find a new job because I was in between jobs um, mm-hmm. and I decided to start writing a blog about kind of my experience working as an in-house attorney. Um, and then that kind of morphed into legal tech because I started reading about kind of this legal tech thing. Um, and realized, you know, it seemed kind of interesting and cool and seemed to align well with kind of what I was thinking about the law in terms of it being a little bit behind the times. So I started to talk to people who were doing actual work within the legal tech space, started to interview them. And that's kind of how my blog um, got started, uh, colonistlovey.com. And then that's how I got started uh, talking about um, legal tech and kind of you know, more broadly about how to improve the practice of law in the legal profession, because I think for too long it's been um, a profession focused on um, itself rather than mm-hmm. focused on the people um, it is intended to serve. No, that's really interesting. And, and just hearing you say that about, um, you know, following people and kind of writing writing with your blog and things, that's really mirroring a lot of things I'm doing at the moment. So um, it's really interesting to hear how that's been your sort of background into the world of legal tech. Um and I don't know about you, but I, I feel like a lot of a lot of the kind of talk about legal tech is extremely buzzword filled. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there, especially amongst students who I think are seeing this kind of wave of articles and speculation about um, automation and robotics and AI and machine learning, all these kind of huge numbers of buzzwords and kind of complex terms and things bundled under this phrase of legal tech without really knowing what it all is all about and kind of the impact it's really going to have on the profession. So in a handful of phrases, what's your view as to what you would define legal tech as and how is it different from those kind of misconceptions that people tend to have about it? So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of hype, a lot of um, seemingly ridiculous articles about <laughs> uh, legal tech. Um, and uh, a lot of them feature words like robots mm. um, or uh, jobs being taken away by technology and or by robots. Uh, so Really, I think the best way to think about legal tech is to think of it as essentially a collection of tools intended to help one um, 
practice law better and more efficiently uh, and to save time and effort on kind of low risk, time consuming tasks, thereby allowing you to focus your time on more higher risk, more impactful types of work. Um, you know, so for example, you know, automation is, uh, is a piece of, of legal tech. And what that is aimed at is trying to kind of automate review of fairly standard documents. At least that's one part of it. For example, you know, non-disclosure agreements, there are tools out there that can help you review those very quickly because, uh, you know, I, I can speak only for myself, but I know as a lawyer, I have spent far too much time looking at them and reviewing them when really that time <laughs> should have been better spent on other things. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what legal tech is aimed at. It's at it's aimed at helping lawyers uh, be more productive with their time, um, and it's really one one set of tools. There are a bunch of other tools that can be combined with legal tech to help you become a more effective lawyer, such as process improvement um, strategies and things along those lines. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the what's written about tends to focus on kind of you know, ridiculous concepts relating to technology in terms of people losing their jobs, in terms of mm. robots replacing people. Uh, we are definitely not at that point or anywhere near the point of robots replacing people. What we are at the point of right now, though, is automation um, taking over some of these more routine tasks like what I talked about earlier, um, which, frankly, lawyers shouldn't be really spending a whole lot of time on anyway because uh, they're, low, as I said, low-risk tasks that um, simply are just time-consuming. Mm. And talking about those articles, just quickly about, you know, those kind of scaremongering things you see about, you know, mass unemployment levels and this kind of robotics replacing the world. I don't think it's even just contained to the legal field where we're seeing all these articles crop out. But what's the kind of backstory there as to why they're getting so much traction and kind of finding their place in the public field? Where are these sort of speculations coming from? So, for, well, I think number one, they're coming from a simple fact of human nature, which is that we have very short attention spans. And um, the press uh, is under pressure to uh, survive financially because of um, the internet and alternative sources of information and or entertainment. So in an effort, I think, to try to increase readership, they're focusing <laughs> on very buzzword heavy um, articles and pieces that are, you know, use as word like robots, revolution, mm -hmm. uh, transformation, um, all of which kind of, I think, overstate the present state of things. With that being said, I do think that the future will look somewhat more like what uh, is being talked about in these pieces, but we're not there yet. Um, mm. I think we have a tendency to, um, I think Richard Susskind said this once, um, we have a tendency to overestimate the present and underestimate the future. And I think that's a large part of what's being reflected uh, in these articles currently. Mm. So it's not even the case that they're necessarily wrong it's just they're probably quite mistimed with the current state of technology and where we're at in terms of its adoption yeah i think there's probably a bit of bit of that i think they are mistimed i also i mean some of them frankly really are just wrong um <laughs> some of them just simply reflect a high level um uninformed view of uh technology and legal tech um and, you know, that's that's unfortunate. But, you know, people like myself um, are trying hard to try to cut through, if you'll pardon the expression, cut through the bullshit uh, to <laughs> um, really kind of explain, you know, how things are, and what people should be focusing on. Absolutely. And another thing I'd add as well is that when when these conversations are being had about legal tech, 
it's quite easy to forget or even overlook the fact that legal innovation generally is is not dominated solely by this tech space and that there's so many other ways in which firms try to innovate themselves and there's different kind of challenges um, beyond the technological ones as to as to how firms innovate and, and adopt new practices so um you know what are your thoughts on kind of how legal tech is only this small proportion of legal innovation and the other ways in which firms can innovate and change so i think that there's um this tendency to conflate legal innovation with legal tech they're not mm -hmm. the same thing you can innovate with tech you can also innovate without tech and tied to that i think is this idea that innovation has to be some kind of big huge project when really it need not be that um, for example in my current role i have innovated in incremental ways and then built upon and then kind of use those incremental improvements to um, do larger tech projects uh, one that comes to mind is, um, you know, I work, I'm the sole counsel for my company. I work very closely with my sales team. And one thing that we didn't have in place before I got there was a sort of training program for the sales team to help them understand kind of how to work with me, how to review um, documents, things I kind of look for, um, and, and, and give them a sense of how to understand um, kind of our basic legal documents that we use um, in our standard transactions. Mm. And so I developed a training program to help them better understand um, all those things. In addition, I also helped develop sort of a subset training program within that on data privacy as that's becoming a bigger and bigger part of my role um, given the types of data that we handle. Um, and mm. so, you know, I built upon those two uh, training programs, if you will, to then develop a, um, a hub for sales and other departments to go to to get these, get our standard documents, uh, see our latest F, uh, frequently asked question document, and frankly, to get a sense of kind of, you know, what I can do for, for them. Because um, I, you know, my goal is to be a business partner for them. And that's how I see kind of my in-house role. So, you know, that's that's the kind of innovation I think that you can do without tech. And frankly, it can be very impactful and very um, helpful. It certainly has been in my case in terms of um, helping sales have a better relationship with me, helping mm -hmm. them be more informed when dealing with larger, um, more sophisticated clients who we're trying to do business with. Um, and frankly, giving them a better understanding of Kind of how i work and what loitering is because uh there's no need to kind of hide behind a curtain or act as if you know being a lawyer is, a, is akin to being a magician it's definitely not that it's way more <laughs> practical way more um boring in some ways um and frankly that's not a bad thing that's that's no. really just part of what it is and so i think it's important to be clear about that and so i think innovation can help with that yeah, and that's really interesting. And, and, and hearing you talk about the, the sort of small victories was kind of the phrase you used, and those little little efforts. I'm guessing it's it's those small victories which are ultimately more meaningful and the better ways to go about that innovation and overcoming the kind of cultural or social barriers that firms might put in place in terms of their hesitancy to adopt new things. That's kind of the way to change behaviors as opposed to this big, big sweeping change that a lot of articles talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really, you know, it's, I think it's very important to understand that innovation is best, I think, done on an incremental basis and using small achievable, um, setting small achievable goals and then using those yeah. to build, um, to kind of build a foundation off of. Um, because I think that's another little bit of a misnomer that's out there, which is that innovation has to be some kind of huge project when 
I think that's frankly unrealistic, especially when you're dealing with um, cultures that need to change. Um, mm. And that goes to the larger, I think, point about how lawyer culture itself is in need of change and is undergoing some change, but it's very difficult given how, given for how long um, lawyers have practiced law the same way without kind of really adjusting to the world or the reality in which they were practicing it. Mm. And, and you talk about lawyers needing that change. What well, could you expand on that? What you sort of mean? Yeah. Well, you know, I think as clients are getting more and more educated about kind of their needs, um, many of them are demanding more uh, from their lawyers in terms of uh, being more of a business partner in terms of understanding their business in terms of providing services at a lower cost, um, in terms of providing services more transparency, uh, more transparently, excuse me, um, and in a more, um, in a quicker fashion. Um, now, I'm not, that's not to say that all clients are like this, but I certainly see a trend with more and more clients being smarter about what they're asking for. Um, and so that in turn, I think, is causing lawyers to have to change how they work for good reason. Um, I also think that lawyers themselves, uh, some lawyers like this, like as myself, um, are also pushing from the inside out to enact change and, and, and make the law more of a uh, user focused profession when for too long it's been a lawyer focused profession, which has done no one any good except the lawyers themselves. There's a lot of talk when it comes to innovation about the billable hour and the and the way that the majority of firms currently provide their services and charge for them. Is there a sense that the billable hour is one of the key things restricting innovation right now, as opposed to actually having the technology capable and developed enough to use it? So that's a really good question or a really big question. I think the short <laughs> answer is yes. I think the billable hour is certainly a very large impediment to change uh, and to um, improving the practice of law. However, the problem is it's a very, very, it's, it's been a very profitable business model and it continues mm. to be as we see articles um, about how well law firms are doing financially. So the problem you have there is you have this culture that's built around the billable hour and you have law firms that are, have based their business model off of the billable hour. And for them, as much as it may seem obvious to some of us on the outside that change needs to happen for them, the incentive is not to change because it's more financially, uh, it, it just makes more financial sense for them to mm. continue using the billable hour. Um, so that speaks to kind of this, this cultural change that I kind of alluded to earlier. Uh, and the problem is getting firms to change a business model <laughs> that remains financially uh, quite good is exceptionally hard. Um, mm. That's why I think it's important for clients to be more educated about what they're asking for, because like any business, businesses are dependent on, on their customers and um, law firms in turn need to be hearing from their customers and or their clients in this case um, about what they expect and what they demand. Um, mm. But I think there also is the point to be made, which is that for a long time or, or for a long while, there's been, uh, you know, this concept of relationship-based lawyer. In other, in other words, law firms have developed these long-standing relationships with clients 
and the clients like those relationships don't want to change the relationship. Um, and so they put up with these ridiculous invoices because the relationship is there and it's existed for a number of years. That being said, I don't really think you need to throw out the baby with the bathwater, meaning you don't need to throw out the relationship. You just need to change that they change the parameters of it and say, look, I still want to work with you guys, but your bills are just too damn high. Mm. <laughs> um, that's true. <laughs> frankly, that's I think one part of what it can boil down to. Of course, all of this is exceptionally easy to talk about and exceptionally hard to do. So I think mm. it's important to keep in mind that while it's very easy to talk about this, it, the change that needs to happen um, is very, very difficult for the reasons I mentioned earlier. And so I, mm. I do think that, you know, the bill hour remains an impediment, remains an existing um, business model that I think um, remains an obstacle and one that um, needs to be more fully addressed by both client and law firm together. Mm. And just, just one more point on that. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, the improvement of client knowledge would be you think one of the kind of key factors in, in, in helping overcome that, that change, or is there something else that you think will ultimately kind of force law firms to inevitably innovate for the sake of just, you know, competing with what else is out there on the market? So it's definitely not the only factor. Um, I think that client education is an important part of it. I think lawyer education is another part of it. Um, mm. In terms of lawyer, in terms of law students, I think demanding more from their law schools in terms of how they're educated, in terms of the tools that, that they learn how to use, and in terms of um, the skills that they're left with after they graduate. I also think um, change will come from competition. Uh, we've seen mm. the rise of so-called alternative legal service providers um, that provide similar or the same legal services law firms just at a lower price point. Uh, mm -hmm. We've seen the big four accounting firms uh, develop their own legal innovation centers, uh, which I think is a very good thing in terms of promoting competition and uh, showing that law can be done more cheaply and more uh, effectively and more innovatively than it currently is. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think there's a number of factors at play here. Uh, and it's a very complex kind of mix. So it remains to be seen, I think, just exactly how things pan out. But I do think we're all moving generally in the right direction. And certainly the rise of these alternative legal service providers uh, and the rise of more educated clients and law schools such as uh, Northeastern, Suffolk, um, uh, and others uh, that are promoting legal tech and legal innovation, I think are all showing kind of the path to change. Most of this episode, we've talked a bit about kind of these these scaremongering articles and, uh, you know, how legal tech is obviously very different from its perceptions. Having said that, do you think there is something uh, in it that, that lawyers of tomorrow and those looking to join the profession actually need to know about and understand about? Or do you think it's it's quite actually reasonable for, for someone to join the profession without this kind of legal tech knowledge and, and knowing how, how firms are trying to innovate? So I would answer that question two ways. No, the first answer would be, I think that there are lawyers right now who are graduating uh, and starting to practice without um, having much base of knowledge of a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, do I think that they can practice law? Of course they can. Do I think that they're at a disadvantage um, long-term in terms of not having those skills? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do I think that they will have those skills? Possibly. 
Um, in terms of whether I personally think that lawyers need to have an understanding of legal um, legal technology, I think that they need to have an understanding of the tools that exist out there, um, how they can be used in terms of the business cases in which they can be used, um, and an understanding, frankly, of, of what innovation is. Not necessarily um, the best way to innovate, but, but what innovation really means in terms of within the practice of law. Um, so I do, because I think that, you know, the world is becoming, if it hasn't already become, a very tech-driven, very data-driven world. Mm -hmm. And it seems silly to me that the legal profession remains one and in some ways seeks to protect itself against um, <laughs> inevitable tide um, towards that kind of future. So I think the lawyers that will be most successful will be those that have a understanding of legal tech tools, understanding of tool of, of when and where they can be used, and understanding of what innovation means and, and how it can be done. Not that you have to do it necessarily, but that it exists and what it means. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a reason why law schools, like those that I mentioned earlier, among others, um, that are focusing a lot of effort and time on these things because they know that in order for them to be relevant and remain successful, just like their students, they need to be focusing on those things. So mm -hmm. I, I do think that um, it behooves all law aspiring law students and current lawyers to have a basic understanding of legal tech tools um, and how to use them. Mm. And I, I, I just add to that, and I, I get a lot of questions from students asking about, you know, my thoughts on the future of depression and kind of what all this, you know, these buzzwords are all about. And, you know, the first thing I tell them is it's it's way more effective to have the understanding of the commerciality behind why these tools are necessary and why firms want to adopt them and why clients are asking for them rather than the specific technical know-how of how they actually all work. It's better to have that commercial understanding in place first because, you know, ultimately, that's that that's more useful, I think, in a, in an interview or you know just generally as a lawyer than specifically knowing all of these kind of technological specifics of how, say, a blockchain works or how you know these different tools work. Um, having said that, where do you stand on the should lawyers code kind of debate? Is it, do you have a view on that? Uh, I, I I laughed a little bit when you mentioned that question uh, because I've been involved <laughs> in a number of debates around this, this that very question. Uh, right. I tend to take the view that if you want to learn to code, that's great. Go right ahead and do it. Do I think that you absolutely need to to be successful as a lawyer? No. Um, do I think that it can teach you certain ways of thinking and certain skills that may be useful to you? Sure. In terms of thinking in systematic ways and logical ways and structured ways. Um, so, you know, there is something to be said for learning to code, but I definitely don't think that it is in any way um, a requirement in order to be a successful lawyer. Um, I do think, as I mentioned before, that understanding the tools that exist out there and how to use them uh, is a, um, or should be a requirement for sure. I'd actually draw some comparisons between, you know, how coders think and how lawyers think in that, you know, when a, when a client comes to a lawyer with a problem, we kind of apply these different tests as to when something, when X is true, it means that we need to proceed with this thing and why not. So, you know, when I was learning to code or at least trying to self-teach myself, I, I kind of found it really interesting and I could, I could quite clearly see some crossovers between the legal mindset and the coding one. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been teaching myself how to code in, in Python, not because... Yeah. I necessarily 
think that I need you to be successful as a lawyer. Um, but because I think it's interesting, I think there are there are definitely crossovers between uh, coding and being a lawyer. Um, I also, you know, it also speaks, I think that that question speaks to kind of a larger theme of um, getting lawyers and, and, and technology people to understand one another. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that's a little bit of a communication and a cultural barrier between the two that exists. Uh, and that I think is proving um, to be a little bit of an impediment in terms of improving how lawyers can work with technology. Um, so I do think there needs to be further work around kind of developing better ways to connect the two, better ways to collaborate between the two, and better ways to um, just frankly understand one another. Mm. And and just on that point, you know, we, we've touched on coding and it's kind of a maybe communication is obviously essential. What are the package of skills you think that it's essential for aspiring lawyers to learn and for currently lawyers and, and professionals to, to be more aware of and to, and to try and upskill at? Yeah, I'm, you know, I think um, other than, you know, what we're all taught in law school, which is I, useful in some ways, but not the end all be all in terms of what we need to know. I would say beyond that, um, certainly understanding how to collaborate uh, okay. with other departments, how to share with other departments or just frankly other people who aren't lawyers. Um, I think how to communicate effectively um, through using non-legal terms. I think <clears throat> how to how to write effectively. I also think there's a large component um, or large sort of um, there's a bit of time that should be spent on understanding emotional intelligence and, and how to read people and how to kind of understand people and emphasize with them because I think being a lawyer today as it has always been just not really recognized is you know ha having to be a little bit of a kind of a friend a therapist counselor um, mm -hmm. business partner advisor you know, and all that kind of, I think, speaks to kind of the collaboration, the communication, the business skills that um, lawyers need today. Uh, by business skills, I mean, you know, understanding kind of the language of finance, how to read a balance sheet, for example, how to you know, just understanding basic financial terms. Because um, if you're going to advise a business, you need to understand how a business operates. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of goes hand in hand. Um, I also think, you know, understanding that people are people and you have to meet them where they are. You have to understand that, yes, you've been taught to think in a logical, systematic way. Well, most human beings don't think like that and they certainly don't operate like that. So it's mm -hmm. important to understand that that's the case and be able to deal with that. No, that's fascinating. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on that. And um, just before we wrap up, is there a place people can go, go to learn more about you and to, to read your content? Sure, absolutely. So the best best place to go would be colinslevy.com. That's my blog. Um, in, addition, in addition, I'm also on Twitter, uh, clevy underscore law. Um, I also am on LinkedIn and I'm easily findable uh, under Colin Levy. Uh, so those are probably the three best places to find me. Um, I'm more than happy to talk with anyone about this stuff. Um, I think that, you know, I often find myself learning a lot from folks that I speak to. And also, I love to just frankly help people and help others learn more about this because, you know, my, my focus really is not on those who already know about this stuff, but on those who, who don't but are seeking to learn. That's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm sure our listeners will have taken away so much from what we talked about today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.